Welcome to Utopia Dispatch, the podcast about reimagining the future and reshaping the world. This is the seventh episode in our series, A Climate of Hope, which is all about positive solutions for tackling the climate crisis. We know that we're going to need massive changes in the way our society, economics and politics operate if we want to have any chance of maintaining a habitable planet. Our mission is to make sure that we're thinking about how to do that in a way that's good for the planet and good for us humans too, looking at how we can survive and thrive in a future that we want. So far, Sarah, Ollie and me have talked about the science, the Anthropocene, optimism, energy, consumption and more. But this episode's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to look at one idea related to the climate crisis that has cropped up a few times throughout the series, but that we haven't really explored in much depth on its own. There's just one guest, and we're going to listen to them as they tell us about this idea and how it affects the way we need to act. This subject is hard to be lighthearted about and has a painful story, and ultimately if we can't understand it and can't incorporate it into our solutions to the climate crisis, then you could argue that there's not really any point in us being here at all. We're going to discuss two words that sound straightforward but pack huge historical weight and consequences for the future. Climate justice is one of those phrases that's chanted at protests and painted on banners and forms a core demand of climate action groups around the world. It's a snappy phrase, but if you're hearing it for the first time, or don't follow conversations about the climate crisis closely, it might sound vague and righteous, and ultimately pretty difficult to turn into any tangible action. So in this episode, we're going to unpack it, to understand why it's so important, and to see how it should be used to shape all of our approaches to tackling the climate crisis. To get to grips with climate justice, we first need to understand what climate injustice is. There are many forms of climate injustice, as climate change will affect us all differently depending on who we are, where we live, and the type of society that we live in. We'll come back to this point at the end of the episode, but for the majority of the show, we're going to focus on global climate injustice. This is how the climate crisis will affect those in the global south, who are economically poorer and politically less powerful, differently to how it will affect those of us who live in the global north. We're looking at this type of climate injustice because of how many people it affects, and also because it's tightly linked to the origins of the climate crisis itself. So let's dive in. Let's begin to understand the world of climate justice from someone who has spent their career researching so, it. Um, my name is Dr. Leon Seeley Huggins. Um, I work here at the University of Warwick, where I teach on uh, a relatively new program called Global Sustainable Development. Um, and my kind of interest in this area and my research uh, is based on the sociology and politics of climate change. I met Leon in 2019 and he kindly took the time to explain the concept of climate justice to me. But first I want to give you a sense of the journey he has taken towards understanding it himself. As Leon told me, it was a journey that started with his upbringing. I'm trying to think back, I mean I feel like I have been raised with a kind of sensitivity to questions about the environment and when I was an undergraduate at the University of Leeds I was fortunate enough to take a course called sociology of the environment and so I was studying sociology as my main degree but this particular course or this module um, was really eye-opening for me in, in in kind of 
sharing with me a way of thinking about environmental problems in terms of the social and political underpinnings. And I, I guess that was quite a, a watershed sort of revelation, revelatory moment. Like so many of the other guests we've had on this series, Leon had a moment when he realised that the environment that he cared about and the society that he was studying were all part of the same system. Over the years, he got involved in environmental activism, particularly focused on climate change, becoming involved in things like Camp for Climate Action around the same time as the 2009 COP meeting in Copenhagen. Eventually, Leon decided to study further and combine the two subjects he cared about by doing a PhD on climate change and sociology. It felt like at the time, sociology as a discipline wasn't really coming to terms with the scale of of the challenge and, and threat that climate change posed. Um, and so I saw an opportunity to, to contribute to that discussion. And then in the course of sort of writing my PhD, I, I became really keen to try and link uh, my biography and the fact that my father was born in the Caribbean. And, and um, I wanted to link that to the study in some way. Through writing his thesis and relating it to his own background, Leon wanted to use his work to open a conversation about people and communities who often weren't featured prominently in the discussions about climate impacts. Even where climate change was talked about, uh, it tended not to be in terms of those who are most marginalised. So again, it felt like another important sort of um, way to contribute to the conversation. While discussions about climate change in countries like the UK focused on debating the science, determining the potential disruption to business and exploring low carbon technologies, we talked much less about the impacts that might happen to people living in low and middle income countries, or those who face intensifying extreme weather, or who depend on the land for their survival, or who are exposed to the rising seas and have few other places to go. Leon wanted to change this because in many ways, those people are the ones closest to the danger. People who uh, people of global majority, people of colour, are they going to be the first to suffer, and are likely to be suffering disproportionately um, more severely uh, than others as climate change takes hold. We can think of climate justice as having several parts, and what Leon has just mentioned is the first and easiest to understand. Basically, there are some people in the world who are going to suffer earlier and more severely from climate change. Whether it's floods, droughts, wildfires, sea level rise, extreme weather or something else, the effects of our atmosphere heating up are going to be spread unevenly around the globe and endured by some people a lot more than others. And as we already know, the climate crisis is not something that's going to hit us like a brick wall. Temperatures are already going up. In the UK, those of us who are old enough will have noticed changes in the seasons and the weather. For other people in the world who live in places that are more susceptible to the effects, the reality is more worrying. Storms that are more intense, rapidly disappearing coastlines, disruption to food growing seasons and bigger, nastier forest fires. Some places will see no serious effects for a long time, but for others, the effects are already here. But Leon said something else. It's not just where you live, but who you are. Globally speaking, it's people who are not white who are more likely to be hit by a climate disaster harder and faster. This isn't just because of the way different populations happen to be distributed around the world. It's not just the result of bad luck that you might live in a country facing an imminent climate emergency, but the result of decisions and actions made by humans. I mean, it it maybe sounds like an obvious point, but I feel like it's something that can get uh, missed and neglected. And there is, I think, a tendency to naturalise disasters. So we sometimes refer to disasters as natural disasters. Um... And there is a sense in which, yes, um, extreme weather or not extreme weather, but but um, 
whether that has kind of disastrous effects is a common feature of human history. However, the extent to which um, a particular event is disastrous will depend in a large part on on um, kind of how the societies that are being impacted are configured and whether or not, uh, for instance, there's an early warning system in place, whether or not people have access to safe uh, safe havens in which to, to kind of take shelter from storms, whether or not... Um, um, uh, yeah, the, the infrastructure has been designed and, and built to a standard that will withstand um, uh, flooding and so on. What Leon is saying is that social and economic factors play a huge role in determining whether natural events linked to climate change turn into disasters for human beings. For example, let's imagine that there are two countries in different parts of the world that each get hit by floods that are about the same size. Country 1 has flood defences, a well-equipped search and rescue team, flood-resilient buildings and stockpiles of food and clean drinking water, whereas Country 2 doesn't have the resources to build or pay for any of those. It's pretty clear that when the floods roll in, the actual impact on people is going to be much more devastating and have longer-lasting effects in Country 2 than Country 1. Now, we all know that the world is an unequal place, but it hasn't just ended up like that by accident. The way that the climate crisis will unfold across the world is a product of historic events. Um, I guess this is where my work has tried to um, try to understand how it is that the the ways we think about climate change neglect the making of the modern world. They neglect the processes that have shaped the world that we currently live in. Um, And I think one of the things that's often um, kind of forgotten or not talked about as much as it should be uh, in relation to this is that the modern world can really only be understood as being the product of um, of, of colonialism and the kind of the, the forms of social relations, the, the ways that we organize our society now um, in terms of uh, a capitalist sort of political economy um, 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 and a, a world market. They are the sort of direct um, result of um, imperialist and colonial expansion by particular Western European powers and later kind of North American powers. The historical events that Leon's referring to, and that have deeply and profoundly shaped the modern world that we live in, started with the colonial expansion of European states in the 15th century. According to historian Philip Hoffman, between the 1600s and just before the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, European powers gained control of around 35% of the globe. But they didn't stop there. By the outbreak of World War I in 1914, they controlled over 80% of the world. European colonialism started as a means to divert wealth and resources to the mother countries in Europe to enrich them. And over time, this system morphed towards an economy of free trade that would be more familiar today. Although most countries that were colonised gained independence in the 20th century, hundreds of years of Western rule put a global hierarchy in place which is perpetuated to this day by unbalanced global power dynamics, unfair trading relationships and development initiatives. part of the legacy that they've left is an uneven uh, world order where some people have a kind of vast have the capacity to vastly over consume the resources that they need to to stay alive and to survive and to enjoy a comfortable life and many others in fact the majority of people don't have uh, enough resources to live um, meaningful and fulfilling lives 
When I recorded this conversation with Leon, Cyclone Idai had just struck the east coast of Africa, hitting Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Madagascar and Malawi. It caused mass devastation and is the second most deadly tropical cyclone ever recorded, killing over 1,300 people. The death toll rises to 89 as Cyclone Hedai batters Zimbabwe. schools are said to be among 31 people who were killed in eastern Zimbabwe by Cyclone Hedai. This situation is very, very serious. It's, it's a trouble. I, mean, yeah, I can say that uh, we are in trouble. Local officials said the body count is expected to rise. The United Nations says more than 100 people have died in weeks of heavy rain. And Marcos, who has been working on a construction site in Buzi, took the opportunity to hit the road as soon as the water started receding. He walked for 50 kilometers. The water consumes the land, homes, belongings and lives. So at the moment we're hearing that there are uh, millions of people who are likely to have been affected, hundreds of thousands of people who are likely to be displaced um, and at the moment thousands of people uh, um, are kind of counted as, as dead or missing uh, and that, that figure is likely to rise. What we do know is that in countries like Mozambique, which are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, the lack of access to the resources to be able to build uh, climate change resilient infrastructure or infrastructure that's robust enough to um, sort of withstand the uh, the impacts of, of, of quite severe weather. Um, part of the reason they don't have those resources is because they don't they, um, is because of the legacy of colonialism and imperialism. The 2018 to 2019 Southwest Indian Ocean tropical cyclone season was the most active, most deadly and most costly on record. It's important to note that scientists cannot explicitly attribute any single extreme weather event to human-induced climate change, but they tell us that rising temperatures will lead to higher numbers and more intense events depending on the type, and places all over the world are at risk. A similar thing has played out in the Caribbean. So um, I mentioned Hurricane Irma a couple of years ago, um, which devastated various countries. Devast uh, and in 2017, Maria, Hurricanes Maria and Irma caused widespread destruction across the Caribbean, where Leon has conducted research. All of these are places that have been heavily impacted by colonialism, massively affecting their ability to deal with climatic events. Um, and so what we have seen in uh, recent events, including the, the one that's been reported today, um, is that countries and parts of the world that don't have access to the resources that they that they need to be able to build uh, infrastructure that's that can withstand severe weather are much more likely to suffer from uh, disasters the worry for these countries is that the effects of climate change may become so frequent and so severe and resources so strained that there will never be time to fully recover between each disaster rendering them practically uninhabitable on the other hand, imperial powers like the UK benefited massively from the looting, slavery and exploitation of colonialism and the modern balance of global power. As a result, they have much larger resources for climate adaptation and mitigation. That's not to say they won't be hit by disasters too. In the UK, we're at direct risk of rising sea levels and flooding, and stories of intense wildfires across the Americas and Australia are becoming increasingly common. Losing people or homes or livelihoods is devastating wherever you are in the world, but generally, governments and people in these places are better equipped to respond to these crises. 
And so this is the second layer of global climate injustice. The fact that the suffering due to climate change will fall most heavily on the poorest countries and people of colour around the world because of the colonial history of the West, while we will be relatively protected by those same unjust actions. But the injustice goes deeper still. Not only are colonised nations the most likely to suffer, they are also the least responsible for causing the problem in the first place. The people who are likely to suffer the most and who are already suffering uh, the first or among the first to suffer um, are not the people who have kind of contributed the most to the causes of, of the problem of climate change. Europe and the United States are responsible for just under 50% of the historic greenhouse gas emissions to date. That's because these nations became industrialised early, driven by an explosion in energy use made possible by burning coal and then oil. Every tonne of CO2 emitted has resulted in a little bit of warming, which means that just a handful of countries are responsible for almost half of the global temperature rise we've witnessed. Although there are other large emitters today, like China, India and Brazil, they've still not caught up in terms of total emissions, and so have not contributed anywhere near as much to the overall problem. Although the rise in emissions has slowed in Europe and the US, they are emitting way more than their fair share per person. Together, they emit 34% of global emissions today, despite accounting for only 15% of the world's population. Africa, on the other hand, is home to roughly the same number of people, but that continent's annual emissions are only 4% of the world's total. I'll post a link to the full stats in the show notes so you can explore the numbers for all the regions yourself. Anyway, the point is that although many countries are now emitting too much CO2, it's mostly countries with a colonial history that have got us to where we are right now while those least responsible are being hardest hit by the consequences. And the final insult is that the extractive process of colonialism, which took resources from colonies and enriched the West, helped start the whole thing. Resources were sort of shipped off to the colonial centres in Paris, in London and, and elsewhere, um, and helped to build the very kind of processes of industrialization and, in, in, uh, and, in, and fuel the Industrial Revolution um, that, that, that has given rise to or exa vastly exacerbated the, the process of climate change. So it's a, it's a kind of uh, perverse um, paradox. A perverse paradox and a massive slap in the face. The wealth stolen by colonial powers facilitated their industrial revolutions, which in turn increased the demand for fossil fuels. That demand has led us to the climate crisis of today, and now most severely threatens those countries who are victims of colonisation in the first place. So this is the story. Many peoples across the world are going to face the worst of a climate crisis that they didn't cause, but which they have paid for. And it's a story that explains why activists such as Black Lives Matter talk about the climate crisis as a racist crisis. As part of their justification for why it was the right of, of, of kind of European colonialists to go elsewhere and, and extract resources to um, kind of uh, enslave peoples, to... Um, to 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 enact genocide on on indigenous peoples and so on that that um was justified by an ideology of racism which held that uh white europeans were superior um to uh, populations elsewhere in the world um and i think again the legacy of that that ideology that way of thinking is also apparent in the way that climate change is unfolding the climate crisis is racist because the heavier suffering faced by people of colour around the world repeats and extends a version of society that was built on racism. 
Climate scientists know that we're already locked into some degree of heating. Even if we meet the ambitious emissions targets that limit global temperature rise to just 1.5 or 2 degrees C, which right now we are not, the global north might be able to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. But the global south would still face much more severe climate hardship. So if we only talk about mitigation methods like renewable energy, or we only develop adaptation technologies that are suitable for the West and other rich countries, then despite our best intentions, we are still actively pursuing a path that reproduces historical racism. This is why people who care about climate justice are not satisfied with tech solutions alone. Climate justice and the climate justice movement tried to... Um to problematize that a little bit, to challenge that way of thinking and to say, well, actually you could have a, a green, you know, green forms of, of energy, energy generation and so on in a world that was still deeply unjust. And um, also there's a kind of great degree of suffering that's already happening that's linked to climate just, injustice. Um, and so if we want to really think about a, a robust response to climate change, it has to be one that takes justice as being um, part of its heart. Properly responding to the climate crisis means slowing the heating of the planet and enabling everyone to survive and thrive on an inevitably warmer planet, not just a lucky handful. This means that tackling injustice is a non-negotiable part of anything we could call a solution. So now it's much clearer to see that climate justice is a tangible demand, not just a snappy catchphrase. It forces us to ask questions about how to tackle climate change in a fair and equitable way. How do we reduce our reliance on fossil fuels while enabling access to clean energy systems in all countries? How do we build resilient agricultural systems that provide affordable, low-carbon food for all in a changing climate? How do we make resources available for adaptation, like flood defences, available to everyone in the world, not just those who hold the most wealth? One approach that Leon has explored in his work is reparatory justice, which involves the redistribution of wealth and power to achieve these goals. I'd start by just saying that I've seen many different forms of call for kind of uh, reparatory justice. So uh, for some people, it's been framed as an issue of, of solely of money and access to, to money. Um, I have to say, I find that framing among the least convincing notion uh, versions of reparatory justice. Other, other versions have been much more expansive and they've included... Um, calls for a redistribution of power and of decision-making power, so a reform of global um, decision-making bodies such as the UN so that um, it's not a kind of cabal of, of uh, countries that has a, a veto power on the Security Council, for instance, and a genuinely democratic global decision-making body. Um, and I guess the underlying principle behind all these various versions of reparatory justice is, is an acknowledgement of uh, kind of what we, we started in talking about and that's the fact that the modern world order is shaped by the legacies of colonialism and imperialism uh, and that has led to an exacerbated uh, global inequalities. So reparatory justice, at least the versions that I'm most persuaded by, um, is, is about um, redressing that imbalance, imbalance history and, and acknowledging it in the present and um, kind of trying to meaningfully uh, rectify some, some measure of the harm. There are a range of pathways to reparatory justice that aim to redistribute wealth and resources and rebalance power. They include cancelling international debts, genuine aid programmes, paying reparations, 
reassessing unfair trade arrangements, creating knowledge sharing programs, and thinking about who gets to use the last of the remaining carbon budget humanity has to develop their economies. All of these attempt to both address climate change and avoid catastrophic climate crises developing in some of the most vulnerable places on Earth. Many potential climate solutions have justice at their heart. We can take more care of the natural environments around the world by preventing deforestation and by creating employment opportunities around biodiversity restoration. We could create and strengthen international laws around the climate and bolster institutions such as international courts to enforce them. We could enforce corporate accountability, making sure that carbon is tracked along supply chains so that the right people pay for damage that's done. We're also going to need to think about how we operate borders in a world where the people who are least responsible for climate change are displaced by disasters. Otherwise, we risk condemning entire communities to becoming permanent climate refugees. For millions, if not billions of people around the world, this is what we must do. For those of us who live in the global north, who enjoy pretty privileged lives compared to a lot of people in the world, it's kind of easy for us to to think, well there's too much to lose by rocking the boat but if you look at um, a lot of people in the global south they've actually especially when you factor in climate change and the, the trajectory that we're on it, really it's a question of survival and, and it's been put in those terms by Caribbean uh, climate scientists and others who've said this is an existential threat to the Caribbean as we know it um, so I think there's that 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 the scale of the the threat does um, uh, bode well for for encouraging the kind of an equally kind of uh, uh, or a scale of thinking that matches that that threat. The thing about tackling climate change through a lens of justice is that it can help all of us. We've heard about the legacy of colonialism and how it unfairly threatens people across the planet in the face of a climate emergency. This isn't the only social or historical factor that determines the level of harm that people can face, and simply splitting the world into two camps is far too simplistic, but we can learn from it and start to see familiar patterns of climate injustice in many other places too. Look in almost any city and you will find housing that isn't fit for purpose and communities that the government neglects. From shanty towns to inner city high-rises, there are people living in spaces that are already inadequate and will be pushed to the limit under a changing climate. The buildings will be too hot, or too fragile, or too exposed to rising tides and falling skies. The places have a lack of access to fresh food, and the emergency services take longer to reach them. The people who live there have benefited the least from our fossil fuel economy, but will face some of the hardest consequences. But even in the places where carbon has brought wealth, climate injustice can be found. Once upon a time, in towns across England and the US and other industrial nations, heavy industry and manufacturing that relied on coal and petrol pumped carbon into the air. For a while, these emissions went hand in hand with wealth creation. But when the businesses became unprofitable and deindustrialization set in, the jobs dried up and local economies stagnated. Now there are whole communities who will face the consequences of those carbon emissions through climate impacts, while the fossil fuel CEOs and the business owners who profited have the means to protect themselves. And it's not just where you're from or the class you were born into. Women have higher levels of mortality in disaster zones and will take on even more unpaid care in crisis situations. Children and future generations who bear no responsibility for the decisions of the past will have to live the longest with the consequences. These injustices all have shared characteristics. 
Economic, social and democratic inequalities create environmental problems like climate change, and then those same inequalities mean that environmental issues turn into crises with unfair consequences. The point here really is that the only way we can solve the climate crisis is by taking practical actions that begin to dismantle systems of global and local inequality. We cannot create true climate solutions if we treat fairness and equity as nice to have, but not essential. They are inextricably linked. And this is what also provides us with our point of hope. Climate change is such an existential threat that it demands a response on a scale that we have never seen before. Scale both in terms of geographic reach and in terms of the changes that must be made to global political and economic arrangements. And although that seems like a daunting task, with that kind of change and with so many people who want real solutions, there is an opportunity to emerge into a new future of global cooperation, equality and prosperity. As this podcast continues to explore solutions to the climate crisis, we'll be thinking about that. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Climate of Hope by Utopia Dispatch. Thank you to Leon for taking the time to share his knowledge about such an important and difficult topic. I really learned a lot from our discussion. You can find him on Twitter at Leon underscore IO, and we will post links to some of his work in the show notes, including a book chapter titled The Climate Crisis is a Racist Crisis, Structural Racism, Inequality and Climate Change. We hope that this can help you to get a deeper understanding of the issues he discussed as well. We would love to hear from you here on the podcast. If you've heard about some great ideas for positive visionary solutions to tackle the climate crisis or have some yourself, you can get in touch by email at hi at utopiadispatch.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Utopia Dispatch. Utopia Dispatch is an independent podcast. Our logo design was kindly done by Liam Smale and this episode featured music by Nathan Cheatham. We welcome contributions from other generous people as well, so if you'd like to help out or get involved, please do drop us a line. Also, we would love it if you could tell people about this series. A post on social media or a review, or secretly subscribing your friend on their podcast app really does help to put this stuff in front of other people and can expand the conversation around the climate crisis. We're counting on you. If you enjoyed this episode, then see you on the next one.